Stay Current is a multimedia publication designed to keep healthcare professionals up to date with standards of care and new emerging ideas. Stay Current in General Surgery is edited by Jeffrey Ponsky, Mina Bolas, and Harveen Lamba in partnership with Globalcast MD and is recorded and produced at Cleveland Clinic in Cleveland, Ohio. Hello, this is Dr. Jeff Ponsky. Uh, I'm a surgeon at the Cleveland Clinic, and I'm here today with Dr. Michael Rosen, who's professor of surgery at the Cleveland Clinic Lerner College of Medicine, and welcome to our uh, podcast on uh, Stay Current. We're going to talk today about another surgical problem as a uh, continuing effort to provide uh, medical education for our audience, and today's topic is going to be gastroesophageal reflux, again from the surgeon's perspective. And welcome, Mike. Thanks for being here. Thanks very much for having me. I'm looking forward to it. All right. So, uh, again, this is just a casual discussion between us, and so we'll start out based on a patient, and we'll say, what if you see a patient, say a 40-year-old uh, person, who comes to you, uh, let's say a female, and says, uh, Dr. Rosen, I've been having a severe heartburn. This has been going on for a couple of years, and I keep taking uh, Tums and Rolaids, and they help. Uh, but this heartburn is interfering with my life now. It's just sort of very bad. What would you do? So I think when you see a patient like that, particularly as a surgeon, if you see them the first time and they really haven't had any workup, I think that surgery should be looked at in disease of gastroesophageal reflux is very far down on the treatment line. And you really want to understand what the symptoms that the patient's experiencing, are they appropriately taking medicine for anti-reflux, and what workup have they had today? So this is one of, uh, uh, this is a fellow in your program, and she comes up to you and she says, look, I work together with you every day. I've been healthy. I have no problem. I'm an athlete. I jog, but I have a high-tension life, and this is a nuisance for me now, and I haven't started any medication because, you know, I've just been waiting for an expert to help me, and so that's why she's seeing you. So what would you do with her? Fair enough. So I think if somebody's come in, never been had a trial of PPIs, never been on any medicine, I, I think in that situation, I would treat them much like how I would assume most primary care physicians do, is I would put them on a trial of six weeks of PPIs. So what dose would you start with? I would start with 20 milligrams a day of Prilosec. Okay, and they can get that over the counter. Over the counter. All right, so you start that on our, just as a, a curiosity, we all go to that. Everybody does that. Why don't we use H2 blockers for this? I think you have to take them more often. They don't last as long, and it's just more convenient to take a once-a-day drug. All right, so PPIs are more effective, and they, we know that PPIs will reduce gastric acid secretion more than H2 blockers. We'll get back to H2 blockers later, but okay, so you, you do this with her, uh, and uh, she comes back in six weeks. You happen to see her every day, but in six weeks she says to you, and she comes and makes an office, I am terrific. This once-a-day medicine, has saved my life. I am happy. I'm having no symptoms. It doesn't interfere with my life at all. What's going on now? Can I continue to take these and what's the story? So I certainly think there's mounting data that a lifetime of proton pump inhibitors, it has consequences associated with it. So so I think at that moment, what I would do is stop them and see if the symptoms came she back. She don't want you to stop them. Of course not. But I would see if the symptoms came back. Okay. So you would try to stop them for how long? A month? At least a month. Typically, if they're if, if they were really working within a couple of days, you're going to know if you have a problem. And she comes back to you and says, "You know, I don't like you anymore because I was feeling so great, and now I'm starting to have heartburn again." 
Okay, so at that point, you definitely need an EGD. Uh, there's no question at a minimum workup, and that, in my opinion, that patient needs a scope. So you opened her eyes quite widely because she says, I was feeling great. I'm taking this simple medication. Once a day, it was helping me, and now you want me to have an endoscopy? Why? At a minimum, to assess the esophagitis, and in particular, to rule out Barrett's. Okay, so it's important to do this to rule out Barrett's esophagus. Uh, Barrett's esophagus is subtle. It may be asymptomatic and a very, uh, you know, hidden. And obviously the risk is for future gastric cancer through low-grade, high-grade dysplasia progression. And so if she doesn't have Barrett's esophagus, you do endoscopy, she does not have esophagitis, and she does not have Barrett's. She wants to know how often she needs endoscopy now. Okay, so let's take that specific patient. So if you, if you have a patient that does not have esophagitis, no hiatal hernia and no Barrett's. 2016, I would want more of a workup before I keep them on PPIs indefinitely, especially okay. a young active person with osteoporosis and, and some of the other issues. Oh, those with are PPIs. some potential consequences. Okay. I would once you get these people on, especially since it's over the counter, I'd want to make sure I was actually treating the appropriate disease. Okay. So what would you do? So in that patient, especially if it was my fellow reasonable person, I, I would tell them that we don't have evidence that concludes that you have gastroesophageal reflux disease or esophagitis, and I'd want to confirm that diagnosis with a pH study. Okay, a, so a what kind of pH study would you get? I would do a Bravo study just because it's easier. So uh, a Bravo study is a little bit better for the patient because they don't have a tube hanging out of their nose. We do an upper endoscopy, put a little bit of a of a uh, capsule, which is a suction capsule, six centimeters above the EG junction, and we can measure 48 hours of pH data. Theoretically, we could have done that at the time of the first endoscopy to assure that the patient doesn't have to have two endoscopies. Uh, would you do that on or off PPIs? I mean, I would always prefer to do it off PPIs. I, to me, interestingly, to me, I like to do that specifically for one reason. I like the Bravo test to tell me symptom correlation. Uh, because as we talk about surgery, it's important to, I think, set patients' expectations about what you're going to make better because it's related to reflux and what might not be related to reflux and is not going to change. All right, so let's let's go into this now. So <clears throat> let's assume that we do a 48-hour uh, Bravo. By the way, we're going to discuss, do you need manometry in this patient at this point? At this point, you don't. Uh, in fairness, in my practice, if I think that somebody is going to go potentially down the operative road, then my workup consists of endoscopy with a Bravo study. As you said, it just makes life easier. And then a manometry, because we're not going to have a surgical discussion without manometry. Okay, so the manometry is something you're going to have to do before you operate. Correct. And uh, it, we'll talk about what else it can add, but a lot of patients don't like manometry. So here you're trying to prove acid exposure. Is that right? Correct. Okay. I'm, so, I'm trying to make the diagnosis for her. Okay. So this is a patient who you're going to now manage off PPIs with maybe Tums or something like that until she has her stuff after a week. And you do that exam, and it, let's say it shows a pH uh, below 4, 6% of the time or 8% of the time, and her Demeester score is 20. What do you want to do? So I would see her back, and at that point, I, I would have a discussion that I, it sounds like she's having mild reflux. And um, I would certainly have a 
deep discussion about lifestyle modifications uh, and particularly weight loss if that's possible. Um, and if there's, you know, drinking coffee, alcohol, all the things to try and reduce reflux uh, symptoms, I would go down that route heavily with that low of a score, no esophagitis and, and, uh, and certainly no Barrett's. Um, and I would try proton pump inhibitors uh, to try and manage her. And she says to you, Dr. Rosen, in two weeks, I am good again. I am happy again. I'll see you when I need you. And you see her in the hall a year from then, and she says, you know, I take these things. I forget sometimes, but I'm good. I'm not having many symptoms. What are the things to look for in somebody who's on chronic PPIs? I've, and by the I've, way, three-quarters of doctors in this hospital probably take PPIs over the counter. I've been on PPIs for probably 15 years. <laughs> yeah, so many of us take PPIs. My bones don't feel weak, and I don't feel like I have Alzheimer's, but I don't really know. So we know that in women in particular, osteoporosis in yeah. the long term, what might you do to, uh, to protect her? I mean, I think you can put them on calcium supplementation, uh, although I think that, if not taken well, can cause some stomach irritation as well. You can get Vitamin bone density yeah. sometimes yeah. as well, right. Yeah. So periodic bone density examinations may be good. So let's just go a little farther. And that was a good, that was an out-of-park home run, and she loves you and gave you wine for Christmas, and that's great. Okay. But you see a similar patient now, and this patient was sent by an internist or a gastroenterologist, and this patient has been having similar symptoms. But the PPIs worked initially and now there's a lot of breakthrough and he put her on PPIs twice a day 20 BID and she's still having symptoms uh, she's uh, can't eat after six o'clock at night because she has a lot of heartburn and regurgitation and what do you want to do with this patient so obviously a little bit more information uh, what her uh, BMI is let's say her BMI is 28 28 okay so um, and I always just, although it sounds like she is, just want to know a little bit about how they're taking the medicine because it's not uncommon. How do you take the medicine? So, so I think it's important for a PPI that you take it within 30 minutes of a meal and you want... After the meal? Before, I typically recommend before a meal. Before the meal. Before, okay. And you want food to be in the stomach to slow the progression uh, of the pill going through your body so that it can last for an appropriate amount of time. So okay. before I go to twice a day, I make sure people are taking it. Uh, a lot of people take it either at night just before they go to bed, which is the worst time to do it, or in the morning and skip breakfast. So as long as they're taking it appropriately 30 minutes before a meal and, and, and they're doing a reasonable job of that and they're still having breakthrough pain, then I would call that symptomatic reflux that's not being controlled with medicine that twice a day already. Uh, so I would work that patient up. And I, they would obviously have had to have uh, an EGD. If they hadn't, I would order an EGD with a Bravo at that time because I'm considering surgery in them and manometry. So tell me about manometry. This is an interesting test and uh, never a popular one. And we put a little catheter down the esophagus through the nose, have them drink a little bit and measure their swallows. What do you look for when you see the results of a manometry? So I think the basic reason that patients need to understand why we're getting manometry, in my opinion, number one is to rule out achalasia because obviously the symptoms can be very simple. It's fun that you say number one to rule out achalasia. Number one. Tell us why. Because if you wrap somebody with achalasia, you have really destroyed their esophageal function. So let me just interrupt you here. Before you started doing foregut surgery, for Nissen's, for, for reflux, how many hellermyotomies did you do for achalasia? Wait, before... Before you got into doing manometry, yeah. and you were operating on... Oh, how many people did I find? For achalasia. Rare. Rare. And now that we do manometry, looking for reflux, 
We actually find patients with achalasia. Why? Why do we find them? How do they have heartburn? Oh, well, I mean, somebody with achalasia has heartburn because of stasis. And they ferment the food in their esophagus, so it causes heartburn. Correct. All right, so we end up finding achalasia when we're looking for a reason for reflux in some of these people. Rarely, but when you do, you feel good that you found it. Absolutely good. So, okay, so we look for achalasia. What else do you look for? So you're going to look for total relaxation of the LAS with swallowing. Correct, correct. Okay, and what else? Uh, I mean, I'd like to see a low resting pressure, the low esophageal sphincter, to go along with the story of of reflux disease. I also like to be able to tailor the fundoplication based on uh, distal esophageal amplitudes. And, And although... There's probably not a specific cutoff, and a lot of it has to do with symptomatic correlation to me with dysphagia and the difference between a floppy Nissen and uh, toupee. I think it's debatable now. It, it, I certainly want to have a detailed discussion if somebody has what appears to be poor esophageal motility due to reflux, not achalasia, about postoperative dysphagia expectations over a long period of time. And at times, the difference between doing a full wrap and a two-pack. All right, so let's just talk about this a okay. little bit. Because, you know, surgeons are sometimes a little bit miffed about which operation to do, and there's some debate in the literature. So let's assume that the patient has normal peristalsis with an amplitude of 30 millimeters of mercury with each swallow, even higher a little bit, and total relaxation of the LAS. The Demeester score, let's say, is uh, 28 or something like that and uh, the patient has an endoscopy which is normal with no Barrett's esophagus and no maybe a two centimeter hiatus hernia. The patient is miserable and wants you to do something. What operation would you recommend? That patient's gonna get a full anissin. Anissin fundoplication, 360 degree wrap, and tell us about, just quickly, the steps you do in the operation. You do it laparoscopically? I do it laparoscopically. Uh, to me, I, I don't do a minimalistic type dissection. I take down, kind of reestablish the GE junction. Take down the frenoesophageal ligament. ligament uh, go up in the chest. I actually think when you do this laparoscopically, one of the disadvantages of laparoscopy is we don't get a lot of scar tissue. And I think one of the ways to reduce recurrences is to actually do a full mediastinal dissection and create ability for that area to scar down. And you also get more length on the esophagus. More length, which I think is kit which is critical. Right. I do take down the short gastrics when yeah. I do it. I just think it's easier to not twist it and, and see exactly what you're bringing around. I think it's important to bring the posterior aspect of the stomach to the anterior aspect of the stomach so that you kind of have a ridge of short gastrics mm-hmm. behind the GE junction. I think the way that a Nissen is created is, is highly variable. And one of the downsides of this operation that makes it hard to reproduce the data. Everybody does it just a little bit differently and there's not really great standardization and it's easy to twist. It's easy to bring anterior wall to anterior wall. Um, So I think that's absolutely critical. Um, So let me stop you here. It is so important, you know, when I do this with residents and fellows, we're so anxious to take down the short gastrics and to get a good retrogastric space and to then bring the thing around, do the shoe shine maneuver. Everybody's so happy that they just create the wrap quickly and don't think about the geometry of the wrap that you alluded to. And the most important part of the operation is taking the time to get the geometry of that wrap. And if you actually put it together and look at it and it doesn't look right, don't be afraid to take it down and reestablish it. One of the things that I've made a mistake on and others have in the, in the past is when you grab that posterior, the greater curved part that's on the left, 
if you grab it too low to do your wrap, you're actually uh, too high on the right and too low on the left, and you're actually trapping a portion of the fundus up above, and, and that's wrong. So the geometry is critically important. How many stitches do you uh, how many stitches do you put in the uh, in the wrap in the wrap? So I can tell you from uh, when I was younger, one of the common mistakes I would make was that I thought I have all this intra-abdominal esophageal length, and I would feel the need to wrap all of that. And I think one of the mistakes that people make is they make the wrap too long, uh, and it adds to dysphagia. So I typically do three stitches. Um, in that, I like it to be about two centimeters, nothing longer. Uh, the sutures that I typically use silk sutures to do this and my first stitch is stomach to stomach and then I can take that knot and I can move the wrap make sure I like where it lies make sure I'm Good happy point. where it's at okay and then my I'll put a stitch below then to set it right where I want it at the GE junction just above it that's stomach esophagus stomach and then I'll go just above that a stomach esophagus stomach. do you fix the posterior wrap to the crew in any way as a last as my last stitch I bring the uh, I do a, I call it a posterior gastropexy. Right. I take okay. the posterior aspect of the stomach to that. I don't like to do it, which I know you do it uh, beforehand, uh, because I, I think that's a little bit cheating that the stomach should be sitting there without tension and not trying to run away. For once, I might have to agree <laughs> with you. You might do it better than I do. <laughs> I love it. Um, so let's talk about the curl closure. How tight do you close the curl posteriorly? So earlier in my career, I used a bougie uh, to do that, uh, 56 French bougie. I, I, I had and one of my uh, friends watch a video of uh, anesthesiologists perforating the esophagus doing that. Uh, and, and as I got more experienced, I think you need it less and less. Um, so I don't use a bougie anymore, uh, and, and I close it uh, enough where the esophagus comfortably has that little V sunlight below it. And I would probably say, as I've gotten older and older, I make it tighter and tighter. Well, I have seen some that have had been taken down, but Ron Hinder, who was a pioneer in this in the United States, used to describe the triangle of air, which you've described below the esophagus, because if a bougie were there, it would fill that space. Right. I agree with you. I don't use a bougie routinely anymore as well. All right, so we have that operation. Now let's get a little bit more complex and use the, uh, the, uh, the manometry to uh, tailor our operation. What if I told you that the patient had uh, uh, some connective tissue disease and uh, the, the, the patient's uh, manometry showed that the peristalsis was a little bit below 20. There was peristalsis, uh, but it was weak. The LES was also very weak. And uh, what are you thinking when you see that patient? Well, I think in those type of patients, uh, I think the key is to have a clear discussion of uh, we don't want to cure one problem to create another disease. And so I typically start with those types of patients to say clearly that the best operation we have to prevent reflux is a Nissen fundoplication. And while it's a very good operation to let the acid not go back up, the pump of your esophagus doesn't work good enough to make it past that barrier. So we need to be able to make your reflux symptoms better without making it so you can't swallow. So in my practice, that's going to be a toupee for the vast majority. Of the Why don't you describe that operation for us? So for a toupee, again, I also do a, a formal esophageal dissection with the pen rows around it, go up into the chest, mobilize to get enough intra-abdominal esophagus. I really do think that's probably at least as important as whatever you do the wrap. And then I also, for a toupee, 
take down the short gastrics because I just think it's easier for me to keep the orientation and know where things are. And that's going to be a posterior 270 degree wrap. I do that again. I make it a little bit longer. So this is probably about two and a half, maybe almost three centimeters long. And I will typically do three sutures on either side. Uh, and then I will. Three sutures to where? Through a, I will do this as esophagus to stomach on either side. Just that, yeah. and then I will do a posterior gastropexy of stomach to uh, to the posterior cruise. You don't do it to each side. To the cruise, I don't like to do that because I think it angulates things in an awkward fashion and is pulling the stomach. So you away close from my the pleura posteriorly, Teriorly, yes. As they used to, some used to leave it open. You close it posteriorly close. and fix it posteriorly in one place. Correct. How many stitches do you do posteriorly? Typically one. Just one. As okay. long as it's sitting where I want. Everything is sitting in. Okay. So this is very interesting. We know that you're trying to, uh, I, I want to just state that the reason you're doing the toupee is to avoid pseudoachalasia here, right. which is a whole other story. So let's talk about some of the problems that can occur after anti-reflux surgery. Um, and this is standard approach. Uh, some of the other problems, obviously, is dysphagia. And we all know that even done perfectly, uh, patients can get dysphagia. When do you start to worry about dysphagia in the post-operative period? So I'm going to answer that as a, as a global thing for all the young people who are listening to this. I would say the hardest transition of becoming an attending 12 years ago and doing foregut surgery was managing patient satisfaction after this operation and realizing when you don't go off service and you don't leave after you do 20 Nissens that people come back with complaints and issues and when to intervene on that. And I think that's a lifelong lesson to learn, but I would say it is critical, and this is clear to patients in my pre-op discussion, that this operation changes things. It's going to change the way you swallow, it's gonna change the way your stomach works, and it's gonna change the way acid moves from out your body. So it's good at that, but there are other things that you're going to have to deal with after this operation. And so I typically, let folks know that this operation is its tightest right after surgery and it's going to get looser over time. And so my expectation is that they have dysphagia and interestingly, the person I worry about the most is the person who shows up two weeks after a Nissen and says they've been eating everything they want and they don't have any dysphagia because you know you made it too loose and you're in trouble yeah. uh, long term. So I, I, my expectation is early dysphagia I certainly wouldn't worry about it whatsoever for the first six weeks, uh, even if I had to maintain a liquid diet. And I probably would not consider intervening endoscopically till three months with no progression and no ability to tolerate anything besides liquids. Okay, and so this is rare, but let's say you have a patient who's six months out <clears throat> or eight months out and they're still having this age of the solids. Well, so, how'd you work them up and what would you do? So first, I would get an upper GI in that patient just to get an idea, make sure the hernia hasn't come back, uh, make sure there's no anatomic reason for that, and to look at where the hang-up uh, is. And, and assuming that I made it too tight, uh, which would be my, as long as there wasn't a recurrence there, I would think that I probably calibrated a little bit tight. Uh, then my next move would be to do an endoscopy. Endoscopy with stretching or bone dilatation? I, mean, I don't do the endoscopy. I said it to you, I but I, <laughs> I, I would say that my expectation would be for dilatation. All right, so let me just tell you that I understand that progression, and, and time does help. Let, let's assume that you saw a year later, this patient has been complaining of dysphagia, 
and you do the upper GI and they have a <clears throat> slightly dilated esophagus with almost a bird's beak down there. What would you do? First, I'd go back this and confirm, by the way. confirm I got manometry. So you had your manometry. I had my manometry. Manometry showed perfect relaxation and good peristalsis before. And, and my EGD showed tight GE junction, no recurrence. It was dilated with no... This EGD, EG, now, EGD yeah, at yeah. this time. Yeah. EGD at this time shows a dilated esophagus with a retained pool of fluid and a tight EG junction. So very obviously, I, I'm very concerned about pseudoechalasia in that situation. Yeah. So I, I would want to get manometry now. And the manometry sure. shows lack of peristalsis and non-relaxing LAS now. Okay. So I think at that point, you have to have a conversation with the patient that, you know, likely due to the wrap, potentially just being too tight and this long of dysphagia, the esophagus is burned out and it's no longer able to pump the food through. So, you know, in those patients, I think before you rush into the operating room, and we're going to be in the operating room, I think you always want to make sure the nutrition is optimized because a lot of these people have had difficulty eating for quite some time. So I would certainly make sure nutrition is optimized. If it wasn't, i consider a peg and feeding them beforehand, uh, but assuming it's optimized. Nutrition is fine in this patient. Nutrition is fine. So, uh, it, you know, in that patient, I think you probably have two options. Uh, what I would do most likely would be to plan to go back, take down the Nissen, do a Heller myotomy, and I would probably add a door uh, to that in that type of situation. All right, so another approach that I've used and that David Ratner described is to take down the Nissen, do a long Heller, and convert it to a toupee so you're on both sides. You don't have to absolutely do the door, but uh, a toupee, a toupee because of both. You mean just to pull it open, or yeah, the toupee would pull both pull it open, and uh, and provide some anti-reflux. We used to do that in achalasia as a primary operation, so I wouldn't argue with either one of those approaches. But you would intervene because pseudoachalasia is a different disease now. Would you take down the whole wrap, or would you not take down the whole wrap to make it a toupee? I have not taken down the whole wrap. I've opened the wrap, okay, pinned yeah. it at 180 degrees and done a big uh, heller between them and had fairly good results with that. But I think that that's something, uh, you know, pseudoachalasia is a real disease and now they have achalasia of sorts. So, so my argument for not, not taking down the wrap is I, I think when you're doing reoperative foregut surgery, uh, just like complex hernias or whatever, it, the best thing to do is have the plan to go in and start over again. Now, if I got in and I thought that I couldn't take the wrap down, I might fall back on that. But I, I think for complex reoperative foregut surgery, you have to start over because dysphagia, was it twisted a little bit? All those things get hard to sort out. So you're saying you would take down the wrap? I would always, I, oh, I would always plan to take down the wrap, realizing that sometimes if I couldn't get it, I, if I couldn't get it, or if maybe some of these I don't need to, you can divide it and leave it as, yeah. as half a wrap. As a toupee. So let me just finish this little discussion with the patient who has these recurrent symptoms but has terrible pain, dysphagia, and you do your upper GI and you see that she's got a slip nissen with a good piece of fundus maybe two inches or three inches above the wrap. What would you do in that patient? And she's very symptomatic. Very symptomatic. Again, as long as she's not obese, uh, you know, uh, I would just, I'm just gonna put out, if, if she was morbidly obese, and I would say a BMI over 35, uh, I would refer to my bariatric. And you would do recommend a Roux-en-Y gastric. Okay, but that's assuming like, that's not the case. Assuming that because I I do think that's just important to mention. That's a great operation a for morbidly obese patients. Yeah. In fact, over what it, for a primary 
case in a patient who's morbidly obese, what BMI do you start looking at RUNY as a primary operation instead of a Nissen? 35. 35. And I think it's really important because the Nissen doesn't work well in morbidly obese patients. Yeah. Okay. I, I, so let's talk about the patient with the herniated wrap. What do you do there? So a herniated wrap in a symptomatic patient, uh, again, uh, for reoperative surgery, I, I do think it is important to reevaluate them from the start. So I, I personally would get a, a 48-hour Bravo study Good. just to understand what their symptom correlation right. is, to have an honest discussion about what I can make them feel better. I would repeat the manometry. Certainly, if I hadn't done it before, I would want to know what that manometry right. was and see whether their symptoms related to something right. else. Um, I, I think in those type of patients, the only other reoperative patients you want to know about is what their gastric emptying function is if yeah. you're doing reoperative surgery, especially if you didn't do it the first time because the symptoms delayed gastric emptying overlap a lot and might have led to some of the problems with that. So I always particularly am looking for nausea and vomiting because those are red flags to me. Be careful going, even in the primary situation, if nausea and vomiting is a large component of my foregut patient's complaints, I am putting the brakes on rushing to do a Nissen and really want to understand what's going on. So assuming all that's not there and I got a slip wrap and all my other stuff just looks like that's what it is, I'm going to take that patient back, take down the wrap, redo everything and give them a Nissen. All right, so here we are in the operating room, Dr. Rose. Okay. You're a great surgeon and I sent you this case because it's one of my recurrences. Okay. Got a slip Nissen that's into the chest. How do you approach this reoperative slip Nissen? Sure. Okay, so uh, anytime you're doing a reoperative surgery uh, after somebody's had prior foregut surgery, and I'm not pointing this at you, even though it's no, your patient. No, I wouldn't be me, of course. Uh, so, so my first part of the operation starts with looking at where the prior surgeon put their incisions. And if somebody had a Nissen and they have an incision in the belly button, you know it's an easy day because they never went up in the chest and they never dissected up in the chest. If you see all five incisions and the lowest one is five centimeters from the umbilicus, you know that person did a real operate, or at least we're in the situation to do it. So that's number one. The second thing I'm gonna do is I'm gonna get back in, and, and what I like to do is the first kind of goal of my operation is to get me to the right cruise. I think that's the most important part of the operation simply because then I know where the cava is. And where you can get in big trouble, I've seen in reoperative surgery, is where the liver and the wrap are obliterating the right cruise you drift off of the wrap and you wind up in the cave. So what I like to do is first get the liver off the wrap. Yes. Uh, and I tend to use say, a harmonic for that. I use a, uh, I'll actually, or a hook or uh, I'll or use scissors. a hook or scissors and I'll set bleeding because my plan is to put the paddle, which is a 12 millimeter retractor there to compress any bit of bleeding. And that's one time where you can injure the wrap, which I'm planning to use later on with the harmonic. So, so I'll do it if I have to but I prefer it to be sharp. Okay, good. Uh, and I take that down, get my paddle in, and I wanna go specifically for the right cruise, and I want that right cruise at the base. Most people haven't taken the dissection low enough down to the base of the cruise, where you can wind up getting that cruise. And if I get the cruise, then I get a choice of going to the right or straight up the cruise with that anatomy, so I know where my cava is, and I'm gonna start taking the wrap down. And the only other thing I've learned in this, the reason why a lot of these things come back is there's just not scar tissue in the chest. So if you're really struggling down there, my second move is to get up in the chest wherever I can find a hole and then work my way back. One of the tricks I used to like to do is to get between the cave, between the wrap and the esophagus was on the left side of the wrap 
is that I could often wiggle an instrument between the esophagus and the left side of the wrap in order to take it apart. Yep. So that's after you get it down. But I think the key, and where I've seen young people get in trouble, and when I've been in trouble myself in this, is where you try to make a space and not do a dissection. So this has to be identifying name structures, digging them out in a very systematic fashion and not being erratic or you get lost quick. So you see there and you're taking this all down and uh, let's assume that you see the vagus nerve has uh, been injured there. The anterior vagus nerve has been injured because it was under the wrap and it's in this mess. What do you do? Well, uh, I think in a reoperative situation like this, uh, as long as I knew or felt comfortable that the posterior vagus was okay, um, in this setting, I would probably do nothing uh, acutely in the operating room. Um, postoperatively, on my upper GI, which I would, for reoperative surgery, I would get the first or second day for sure, I would look at that stomach was emptying, just as a poor man's gastric emptying study. And if it wasn't, and I was concerned about any other vagal injuries, I personally would go early to Botox uh, of the pylorus. I wouldn't do a pyloroplasty at the time of this operation unless I was convinced that I, I took both nerves. Okay. Even then, there's some evidence that it may not matter. Correct. Uh, I want to thank you for your time today. I hope everyone enjoyed this as much as I did. Getting Dr. Rosen to sit and talk <laughs> this long is unusual. And we're going to be back with a whole series of... Uh, podcasts in uh, gastrointestinal surgery. So thank you once again for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this show of Stay Current in General Surgery. You can listen, watch, or read all content by downloading the Stay Current in Surgery app. Please send questions or comments to us at staycurrentpodcast at gmail.com. We'll see you next time.